119th Psalm, and we'll look at verses 73 through 77. That's Psalms 119, verses 73 through 77. Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice, because I have hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. May God richly bless both the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Before I get started, I, do, I did neglect to mention to keep uh, Brother Hill in your prayers. We'll be traveling to California on Wednesday, and uh, we pray for safety in his travels and um, that he wouldn't be affected by the fire. So let us uh, keep uh, Brother Hill and his wife in your, in your prayers. In our exposition of Psalms 32 on last week, we noted from verses 1 and 2 of that particular psalm that those who are the recipients of saving grace are legally exonerated by God. And what that means is that our standing before him is a legal status. God declares us to be righteous. God, the judge, declares us to be righteous because he has covered our sins, and he has atoned for them through the person and work of his son. So therefore, God, all of those who are saved by God have been exonerated by the divine judge. We also noted from verses 3 through 5 that those who are legally exonerated by God are brought under uh, the parental care of the God who pardoned them. And that's why, as, uh, and, and this is important as it relates to the dealings with our what we would call our continual sins or uh, that God has exonerated us and now he brings us into his fold as his children. And let me just pause there for a moment. Every human being is a creature of God. But every human being is not a son or daughter of God. We are children of God by virtue of him declaring us to be saved. Now, by the way, what that, that does not mean that we shouldn't, we shouldn't care for one another. We are all equal image bearers of God, but only those that he has exonerated in the courtroom of divine justice are his children. As a matter of fact, he takes us from the judge's chamber into the family courtroom and adopts us. So everyone that he has exonerated, he adopts, and those are his children. Everyone is, is, is an equal image bearer of God, and we all have an obligation to love our neighbor. So all of mankind are your neighbors. And the second table of the law tells you to love your neighbor. But the, so, so the world is one big neighborhood, 
but it's not one big family. We are in the family of God because he has brought us before the bar of divine justice and he's exonerated us. But in verses 3 through 5 of Psalms 32, we understand that those who have been exonerated by God will continue in their rebellion against his law and resist his will. So therefore, in verses 3 through 5, God parentally chastens those who belong to him. He has taken us from criminal court to family court and adopted us. And so every now and then, he, those that he has exonerated, they came to him with all kinds of issues, and those issues remain. And so now what we see is that God doesn't bring us back to the courtroom when we go against his word and will. He doesn't, he doesn't throw us out. He doesn't, he doesn't say, okay, now go back to jail. No, what he does is those that he has exonerated in the courtroom, he takes us to the woodshed. And he disciplines. So those that he has exonerated as judge and has adopted as his children, he does take us to the woodshed as our father as a means of chastening. We address this in the spirit of Hebrews chapter 12, where the writer tells us that God only chastens those who belongs to him. And so that's what we are addressing as we look at our text today. As a matter of fact, it is this parental chastening that is really at the core of the text that we have before us. Notice in verse 75, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. That's the words, those are the words of one who has been disciplined by grace. And that's what we want to look at, what it means to be disciplined by grace. There are only two thoughts, and we'll divide it out. There's a twofold recognition that we'll look at here, and then a threefold response. Those who have been, that's, that's grounded in the text. And, and so the twofold response that we see, because if verse 77 is really, or 75 is the, is really the crux of what we want to deal with and we, we begin with, it is, it presupposes a disciplinary act on, a, on the, on behalf of a gracious father to one who has been exonerated. So there is a twofold Response and that is anchored in verse 75, or a, a twofold recognition that uh, that really sort of explains verse 75. And so let's look at this 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 aftermath of the watershed or the woodshed visit. And in this twofold response, the first thing that that David, who was the author, is credited as authoring the 119th number of psalm, and we don't know what the backdrop is, what particular point in his life that is being referenced here, but here's the first recognition that uh, David recognizes that his sinful action was against a righteous rule. His sinful action was against a righteous rule. 
He is dealing with the fact that he understands that God has afflicted him and he understands that his affliction is because of his sin. But what he recognizes is that his action was a violation against a righteous rule. Now here's what I mean by this. What David is not doing, he understands that he hasn't been thrown under the bus, he hasn't been brought back to court, but what God does in chastening his children, one of the fruits that he brings out of us is the recognition that our actions, that our sin, as Paul says in Romans 7, that we would see the exceeding sinfulness of sin. And our sin is a violation of what we understand to be a righteous rule. There is no self-justification here. David is not saying, Lord, I, I, you know, it was a mistake. No, he says, what is, what is at issue here? I understand that what I did violated a rule that you have established that is righteous. Brothers and sisters, that's what God causes us to do. As he brings down upon us, we may have said something, well, I didn't mean it, but, you know, my heart. No, when he really weighs down, when he chastens us, he allows us to see. And, and brothers and sisters, take any sin on the spectrum, whether it is gossip, whether it is lying, whether it is stealing, whether it is sexual immorality, that our sin is a violation against a righteous rule. That's what he acknowledges. I realize what I did. He's, there's no excuse. There's none of this, well, I was going through a phase. No, what I did is I broke a righteous rule. What God does in bringing us to salvation through his son is he gives us a thirst and a hunger for righteousness. And as he convinces us and convicts us of sin, he lets us see that what our deeds are, what we would denounce and hate in others, it's what we've done. You see, when we, when we are quick to say, oh, they shouldn't have done that, what God does is he points it back at us and he lets us see what we are. And what we are are too easy to go against a righteous rule. That's what David does when Nathan brings it home to him. And he says, David, David has already slept with another man's wife and then put him in a way where he would be killed. He said, how do I bring such a news to such a godly man? How do I bring such, how can I deliver to him the, the egregious nature of his sin? And so what Nathan does he gives him a story about righteousness. Tells him about a rich man who had a few guests coming in and he didn't want to disturb his own flock in order to feed his guests. 
And he says, there was a poor man who only had one little ewe lamb. And I love the way Nathan points that out. It was a ewe lamb. He doesn't just say a lamb. It was a ewe lamb. And it was like a family pet. And the man, rather than taking one from his own flock, goes and takes that one little ewe lamb. And he takes it and slaughters it for the good of his guests. David is outraged. He says, who is that scoundrel? He doesn't deserve to live. Nathan says, my Lord, you're the man. When God disciplines us by grace, all of the excuses that we have used for our wayward and nasty behavior He doesn't confront us with it and say your behavior is nasty. Sometimes he shows us how nasty it is in others. And he shows us that we're no better. Here's what David says. I have sinned because I know that the rules that I broke were righteous. And and by extension, if the rules are righteous and I broke them, then I am unrighteous. This is a recognition that comes from the burden of the hand of a loving God that we have sinned and broken a righteous rule. And brothers and sisters, it's not until we understand the rules that we are running roughshod over are righteous that we will pump our brakes and sometimes go a different path. But here's the second recognition that David has, not only that his sinful action was against a righteous rule, but that the affliction that he experienced was a matter of parental love and not judicial retribution. David recognizes that what I've done is I've, I've, I'm, I'm a wicked man. I'm, I've, I've done this. And I, but I recognize, oh God, that, 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 I, that the affliction that I have experienced has come from you. But he recognizes that this affliction is not a matter of a judge who's now exacting retribution on him. But instead, he understands that this is coming from a loving father. Notice what he says. It was in faithfulness that you afflicted me. It was in faithfulness that you afflicted me. Proverbs says that the man who spares the rod hates his son, hates his child. And so here's the question, what is it, what is the affliction? Because again, we don't know what the affliction is. We don't know what point in David's life is being referred to here. We don't know what it is that he experienced, but here's what he's sure of. At the point of confession, David recognizes that what he has experienced has come from the hand of God. Even if he's used 
external and horizontal circumstances. It all comes back to the hand of God. And here's what he understands is that what God has done is afflicted him, but he's done it in his faithfulness. Isn't that an interesting combination? You've afflicted me. And we would be prone to say that, that if God has chastened his children because he's a judge. No. David says that the affliction that has come from the hand of God towards those who has, whom he has exonerated is the faithfulness of God. It's an expression or an extension of the faithfulness of God. And what is the faithfulness of God? Well, God is committed. In other words, it's, it's the trustworthiness of God. And so what is God committed to that he is trustworthy in? In Ephesians, there are two statements that Paul gives concerning our salvation. In chapter 1, verse 4, he says that he has chosen us since before the foundation of the world so that we would stand before him holy and in love. I would argue that the affliction that has come from the hand of God has been aimed at bringing David, his child, deeper in love and more towards holiness. Whatever means it came by, the end for which it is aimed is to shape him in love so that ultimately, in other words, it's part of the journey to him standing before God, holy and in love. But also in chapter 1 of Ephesians, he says that he has saved us by his grace basically for this end so that we would, uh, for the praise of the glory of his grace. And I would argue that the affliction that the Lord has brought into the life of David because of his rebellion as a child because of his resistance against his father's will. God has therefore brought affliction, chastened him. Because he's broken a righteous rule and, and the father has chastened him to bring him as a part of the process that would bring him to the praise of the glory of his grace. And also God's faithfulness is seen in the affliction that he has brought upon his children because what God has committed himself to is eternal fellowship with us as children. And so the affliction is in keeping with us being his children because if he did not afflict us, then he will see us on the day of judgment in court. And so God afflicts us as his children because he's faithful in proving his love to us as being our father and us being his children. And I would argue, therefore, that the afflictions that God brings upon his children are for the end of shaping us, shaping us, training us, as the writer of Hebrews says, training us in righteousness. 
Because something about our appetite for unrighteousness is inconsistent with who we are as children. And so God sometimes afflicts us because we keep going back to that which we shouldn't. And he never gets rid of us. And he never puts us out. But what he does is he trains us. And he brings down his hand of affliction on those who are his. This psalm and this portion of the psalm comes at the end of a disciplinary period in the life of a child of God. And at the end of that period, he recognizes, one, that what I've done, I I know I did it because I just wanted to do it, but now, Lord, you make me see what I've done is that I have stood against righteousness. What I've done is act as a child of darkness. But also he recognizes that that therefore the affliction that you've put in my path, you've done it out of your faithfulness to me. It is out of your faithfulness, it is out of your desire that I would be a child that you have created me to be. It is out of your love for me that you have trained me. You want me to stand in righteousness and in love and you're training me in that. The writer of Hebrews says no discipline seems good while it's going on. And by the way, that does not justify a whole bunch of cruelty. God is, is, he, he is firm, but he's never cruel to his children. And so what David recognizes At the end of this period of chastening, he recognizes, Lord, what you've done is you have done this for a good. You've done this to prove how much you love me. Well, that brings us to a second thing, and that is that we've seen the twofold recognition that comes from the hand of grace's discipline or gracious discipline but we now see the threefold request that flows out of grace of a gracious discipline. Three things that David asked for from God. The first one is in verse 77, and he says, Let your mercy come to me that I may live. Let your mercy come to me. Well, it's a little misleading and some translations, this ESV has it, let your mercy. But the, e, the, the King James is closer to what is, is, is meant here because mercy is, to, is the withholding of, of condemnation or the withholding of judgment. But the, real, the Hebrew word that's translated here is closer and, and the old King James captures it by using the phrase tender mercies. And the idea that is conveyed is compassion. So now that he has been chastened by God because he realizes that he has violated a righteous law and he understands that the affliction is only the expression of the Father's love towards him, he says, now, Lord, and he's only asking for what is already given, but he says, let your compassion. In other words, Father, I know you won't, but I'm just saying this. 
Let, let your compassions come towards me. In other words, let your compassions come to me. Don't hold a grudge. Because I can't live with the idea of a father who is still holding on to my mess up. Let your compassions come to me in my hurt so that I know and I'm always reminded of your perpetual love for me. It's not the mercies that, that, that says, hold back your judgment that I may live. He has life and he has been disciplined. But it's almost as if he's saying, Lord, I can't live. You remember, by the way, Moses. Moses is a good example of this. The children of Israel, when he was up receiving the, the Ten Commandments from the Lord, and he came down into the camp, and you remember how Aaron was leading the people in, in, in idolatry 101? You know, they, they're just having a good old time. And, and the Lord gets Moses' attention and says, go down there and get those folk. And, and when Moses brings them and, and, and challenges the situation, the end result is many died. And the Lord says to Moses as he gets ready to go and resume the journey, the Lord says, Moses, go ahead. I'm just going to send my spirit, but I'm not going with you. And Moses, who is the spirit that he would send? He would send a Holy Spirit, equal part of the Trinity, of the Godhead. But Moses says, Lord, no, don't just send your spirit. We need you to go because if you don't go with us, we may as well stay where we are. I think that's the spirit of what David is saying here. I know I'm yours. And I know that your chastening hand was a necessary action, but, but Lord, can I have some compassion from you? I know I've been excluded from the table, but when I come back to the table, don't give me the cold shoulder. Let me experience the warmth of the bond of the fellowship that we've always had. Because otherwise, I really can't live. Perhaps he's, he's being a drama king. I don't know. Maybe he's being a snowflake. I don't know. But here's what he knows. He knows that he's forgiven. And he knows that his, he's pardoned. He knows that what he's experienced, he deserved. But what he's asking of his heavenly father is don't. You don't always have to bring it up, do you? Show me some compassion. And here's what grace teaches us. Grace that disciplines us teaches us that the Father's face will never be turned away from us. And so he says, let your tender mercies let them come to me. Spoil me again. Give me some dessert. You know, give me dinner, but let me have dessert. Let your intimate bond with me be known. Because I'm not just a creature. 
I'm not just your servant. I'm your son. And so therefore, let the tenderness of our father-son relationship be as such that I can walk in the knowledge that you are with me. Here's the second thing he requests. He requests in verse 76, let your steadfast love comfort me. Let your tender mercies come to me so that I don't feel alienated and alone and unloved in this world. But let your steadfast love be my comfort. Why does he need, and by steadfast love, we made this point throughout the Psalms. By steadfast love, what we mean is God's covenant faithfulness and covenant love towards his, his children. And why does he need to be comforted? And, and the, the Latin, uh, the, the word comfort is, is a combination of two Latin words, C-O-M, come, which means with, and fort, F-O-R-T, which is strength. So let your faithfulness, let your covenant love and faithfulness be strength for me. Why, on the, why in the world would he need to be strengthened? by God's covenant love and faithfulness. Because brothers and sisters, sometimes we fly high in our Christian walk and then we stumble. And when we stumble, we start being mindful of the fact, not that we didn't know it, but we are reminded of how unworthy we are. And so we need to be strengthened. Just what we read through the, through the, the response of reading. A, that no one can bring any charge against God's elect. Because not only has he declared us to be righteous in his divine courtroom, but he's also closed the door and has dismissed the courtroom. And he has now brought us into the family court and he has made us children. But then when we feel the, the chastening hand of the Lord, we are reminded that I sinned against, I violated a righteous and holy standard. And then we look at ourselves, that's because I'm a wretch. But what he says is, but you're mine. So the strengthening of God's covenant love is to remind broken, convicted sinners that your sin has not outshined his grace. I've often said that we cannot outsin God's grace no matter how hard we try, and we try pretty hard. Let your covenant commitment to me be my strength because my covenant promise to you has proven to be pretty false and pretty weak. Don't let me stand on the strength of my testimony, but let me stand in the strength of your covenant love to me. Let the broken body, let the shed blood 
I've read way too many Christian books that say, but if you do this, then he, you can't out sin. You can't, you can't lose your salvation, but you can stop believing. Listen, let, let God's covenant love, let God's covenant commitment to us reach us in those points, not just when we're on top of the world, but when the world is on top of us, when we are the ones, we are the man. We are the ones who have borne the brunt of God's chastening hand. We felt his affliction. And now that the punishment is over, now that the chastening is over, let us go with the knowledge he's still our father. He still loves us. No matter how egregious that sin was, that we are strengthened by the knowledge that we are loved with the love that is greater than all of our sins. Let that be our comfort. Let that be our boast. Let our boast not be, well, you know, I brought 20 people to the Lord. I go to to prayer and fasting every Wednesday and I do this. Let that not be our boast. Let not our boast be how good we are and how much better we are than we used to be. But let our boast and let our strength be the knowledge that God sent his son to die for sinners of whom we are chief. David requests Lord, be compassionate to me. And Lord, let your covenant commitments to me be my strength. Because there are spots in the journey where ghosts of sins past keep coming into my mind. And wagging fingers and shaking heads and rolling eyes of those that you surrounded me with remind me of just how bad I've messed up. The failures of my flesh make me think I ought not be here. So strengthen me in what you've pledged yourself to. And what he's pledged himself to is that that, that their, their sins and their lawless deeds I'll remember no more. And Lord, because you won't remember, here's the problem. I remember. And so do they. So strengthen me with the knowledge and the reaffirmation of what you've committed yourself to. But here's the third and final thing. David requests not only that God's tender mercies would come to him so that he could have a life of intimacy with God and that God's steadfast love or his covenant love would would come to him, would would comfort him and, and be the source of his strength. But David also requests in verse 75 or 73, give me understanding that I may learn your commandment. Give me understanding. Here's what I like about that. He says, give me understanding. I've already acknowledged a, a sense of right and wrong. 
But the reason I did what I did is because my understanding, that's what it is. That's what, what drives us. It's how we see a thing. And do you know why we see a thing the way that we do? In fact, tonight we're going to be talking about wisdom as, as, as is presented in James. The reason we, we do what we do, the reason we find it comfortable to say what we say about someone else or to someone else is because the scripture says there's a way that seems right to a person. There's no action that we take. There's no word that we speak that we don't see it as being right in that situation. Or else we wouldn't do it. He said, no, sometimes we, we do things we know is wrong. No, no, but what you're saying, I, we, we know it's wrong, but we don't recognize how wrong it is. You know that every lie, every slander, every gossip, every failure to do what God has required us to do is deserving of eternal hell? Did you know that? Did you know that lustful thoughts and bitterness and division and strife? Did you know that God says that he hates it? Did you know that? You say, well, yeah, I know. No, 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 no. You, you know that's what the scripture says. You can tell me the verse that it is. But you don't know. You don't know in your innermost being how hideous it is in the sight of God until someone else does it. And that's not what tells you how bad it is. No, we know how bad it is when it emanates from us. And what David is saying is, Lord, you fashioned me. You are the one, in a sense, who have recreated me. And just because I know and I can quote the Ten Commandments by heart, write it in my heart. So that what you have desired would be my desire. So that I would see my neighbor. And I would see my brother or sister in the faith. In the way that you do. Give me an understanding. To know your will in such a way. That what you hate, I would hate. So that my thoughts would be paired to your commandments and that my affections would reflect your heart that I would find discomfort in what you hate because otherwise here I am doing it again what grace doesn't do when it disciplines us, it doesn't remove God's love from us. But he works through external circumstances to put pressure on the soul so that we would be forced to look up and see his law as being holy and just and good. And in us, everything that his law 
is supposed to be is not in us. Here's what grace does. It causes us to see the sinfulness of sin so that we would know the bounty of grace. And it points us back to the one who took us both to the courtroom and judged us, the family court and adopted us in the woodshed and chastened us so that we don't retreat from him. God disciplines us by his grace. We don't retreat from him. We go to him and we plead for his compassion and we seek to be strengthened by his covenant faithfulness to us. And we ask him to take us back to school and teach us, teach us your word so that our words, our thoughts, and our deeds would reflect your word. God loves us. And he saved us. And those that he saves, he troubles us so that we would know more and more of his love. Amen.